to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, a podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Britnica. So Sarah, I mean, we've obviously been following this Silicon Valley bank. Uh, obviously. Collapse, op- following and covering it in the newsletter, which everyone should be subscribed to, by the way, readthepeak.com. But we've been covering it extensively. Um we haven't done a podcast episode on it because honestly, it happens so quickly. It doesn't, you know, for a weekly podcast, it barely fits within our our recording schedule. So I thought it would be good to do a bonus episode this week uh, just to make sure that anyone who, you know, consumes the peak in an audio format rather than a written format is up to date on on what's been going on there. And we have the benefit now of two weeks of, of hindsight to be able to just like unpack the full thing for you, which is which is great. Yeah, I know. I mean, maybe <laughs> are you are you saying we're late? <laughs> no, we just have a full view, I think. And we have a bunch of we have a we have a great guest on. I know that you'll get into it, but it is kind of a good place to look at the scenario because there was a lot of panic, there was a lot of emotions, tensions were running high. True. And now we just get to look at the whole situation from ten thousand feet, which is a good way to look at it. Yeah, and we've kind of seen some of the, I don't know if fallout or just subsequent unrelated events that seem similar, like the uh, acquisition of Credit Suisse by UBS and some of the issues that other banks in the States have had. And we've seen how uh, regulators have stepped in to try to stem some of this this panic. So it, you're right. It's good that we, we waited a little bit and we have a, a full view of, of what's gone on since then. Uh, and we have a great guest on to break down what happened for us and specifically with a focus on the tech angle, because I don't think you can tell the Silicon Valley bank story without talking about tech and how it's going to impact Canada is largely through that channel of the tech ecosystem. Murad Hamadi is here to join us. He's the Ottawa correspondent for The Logic, covering business and innovation policy. Murad, thanks so much for joining us on Free Lunch. Thank you so much for having me. So I think just to set the stage here, can you give us a, a rundown on what happened with Silicon Valley? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start from the idea that you are um, you're starting a bank um, and uh, essentially you would do two things. You would uh, take deposits from people or uh, companies uh, and you would make loans to people or companies. That's simplifying quite a bit, but that's the base level. You take deposits, you make loans. You use the deposits that you take to fund the loans that you make. Uh, you pay interest to the people that make deposits with you, and you take interest from the people who you give loans to. Silicon Valley Bank did this primarily for the tech industry. So um, if you are a company that has raised money, you would put that money with Silicon Valley Bank. And Silicon Valley Bank might lend you a certain amount of money on top of the money that you've raised uh, in debt. And the reason that you take that money is uh, it's cheaper than equity. Instead of giving up part of your company to your investor, you agree to pay Silicon Valley back with bank back with interest. What happened is between sort of the, um, off, just after the, like the first shock of the pandemic. So call it, you know, towards the end of 2020, all the way through 2021, through the start of 2022, there was a lot of venture capital available to startups and growing companies um, all over the world, but particularly in the United States. 
record levels of funding. You were seeing something similar on the Canadian side. That meant that Silicon Valley banks depositing customers, the companies that banked with them, had a lot of money that they needed to put somewhere where they were putting it with Silicon Valley Bank. But because there was so much money available, not that many of them needed loans, or at least not in the same proportion. So even as the deposits, the amount of deposits that SVB is holding keeps going up, the number of people that want to take that money as loans is not actually going up at the same rate. So they have to find a way to make margin off the money that they're hoarding. Otherwise, they can't pay the interest that they're offering depositors. And so what they do is they put their money in, again, simplifying, but a lot of long-term government bonds. And these things are typically pretty safe because what you're doing is you're lending the government some money and they're saying, we'll pay you back that with a, with a relatively small amount of interest usually at some future date. But it's the US government, right? The US government does not, with some exceptions, default. Um, but what ends up happening is interest rates start to rise because inflation is really high right now. Uh, and when interest rates rise, those bonds get less valuable. And so Silicon Valley Bank has bonds, paper, that are less valuable today than they were yesterday. Um, and at the same time, the market uh, starts to dry up, so companies start needing the money. All this comes to a head um, sort of a couple of weeks ago um, on a uh, Wednesday evening when Silicon Valley Bank puts out a news release saying, you know, we need to raise uh, a certain amount of money. It was about $2 billion, which in the grand scheme of things, in the Silicon Valley Bank scheme of things, not a ton of money. We need to raise that money from our investors because we had to sell government bonds at a loss. And then that's when the bank run starts. So Silicon Valley Bank, very well integrated with uh, the uh, tech community in Silicon Valley. Uh, and what you end up with is a bunch of investors, uh, venture capitalists, who say to the companies they've invested in, look, Silicon Valley Bank is looking shaky or there's more risks than it was yesterday. Something looks wrong. So take some of your money or all of your money out of SVB, put it somewhere else that's safer. And these things spiral because you want to take your money out before there's no money left to take out. Uh, and that's how you spark a bank run. So then you get bank run and bank run happens like Thursday through Friday. And by Friday, by sort of Friday afternoon, something like $42 billion has been withdrawn from Silicon Valley Bank, which is like the largest and fastest, I think, in U.S. history. Uh, certainly it's never happened that quickly. Uh, and bank runs... Um, are things that have to be stopped aggressively because not only can one bank collapse, but then depositors who feel like their bank is a little bit like the bank that's collapsing will do the same thing to their bank and you get contagion. And so that's when the US government, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation steps in uh, and basically shuts the bank down, takes control of it um, to put a stop to everything that's going on. So that gets us to Friday. <laughs> Uh, and the reason I keep saying that the news of the day is, is like, it's hard to explain just how fast all this happened. Um, you know, in historical examples, bank runs have taken weeks uh, because you actually had to go and show up at the bank and stand in a line and get your money out and then move it somewhere else. And now if you're a startup and you're panicking, like you log into the Silicon Valley Bank site, you move your money to like Chase or somewhere else. Uh, and the emails go out to every portfolio for them. So you have these weird things where like, you know, you have 
Among the things that SVB does in the US, uh, and we'll get to the Canadian, because the Canadian operation is slightly different, we should talk about that. Um, mm-hmm. But in the US, they don't just bank the startups, they sometimes bank the CEOs, um, they uh, they bank the venture firms, they lend to the venture firms, they invest in venture firms. So you had venture firms that had Silicon Valley Bank money that they were giving to other companies, like that was part of the funding that they were using, telling those same companies to pull their money out of SVB during the bank run. So it gets all gets real messy real fast. Yeah, no kidding. So was Silicon Valley Bank doing anything wrong like was there mismanagement there or is this a just confluence of factors almost outside of their control a little bit of column a little bit of column b uh not a lawyer uh so i should say that um but sure uh, not criminally wrong just (laughs) not criminally wrong Uh, no uh, the the bet that they made on long-term bonds so there's an interesting thing there's an interesting question about interest rates and all this right one of the reasons why there was so much money flowing to companies uh, from VCs is that interest rates have been historically low for a historically long amount of time. Uh, And that means money is cheap. um, And so, and uh, bonds don't get you as good rates of return. So lots of investors are looking for places to find yield to make money. And one way you do that is like tech, tech companies, tech startups are not, they're a relatively high risk bet because quite a lot of them fail and quite a lot of them you know, never end up making being worth more than you put into them. But some of them do spectacularly well. So there's more money looking for a home and some of that money money finds its way into tech. But when interest rates start to go up, then, you know, why would you, some of the people that were funding all of that, that go, go, go are like, okay, I can get, you know, higher percentage points on a bond. Uh, and it's pretty safe. So I'll put my money there instead. The money dries up. Um, and so instead of it being the case that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, they essentially, the short answer to your question is there's a bad bet here on government bonds and on interest rates staying low. Because when interest rates start to rise, both sides of Silicon Valley's bank's business, i.e. the like the, the money flowing in from through deposits, and the other side, which is what they have invested that money in, are going like down at the same time. Whereas if they were they had not made that bet, then in theory their loan interest rates are going up, so it's fine. It, it kind of evens out. Um, now the speed with which rates have gone up in the last little while, because of the speed at which inflation has happened, that is perhaps something they should have been able to foresee. Certainly other banks seem to be able to foresee it. Uh, but there is a little bit of a, a shock. And then the bank run, the bank run is like, again, the speed of that thing is incredible. And, you know, we'll maybe, we'll talk, talk about other banks later on. But, you know, when you see like over the weekend, uh, Credit Suisse got bought by UBS, um, and that happened incredibly quickly, too, because the stock price was just tanking. And so those fluctuations are kind of novel and, you know, perhaps outside of the bank's control. But the fundamental, like, bad bet, no, that's a management decision. How is it that seemingly every tech company or VC in Canada and the U.S. was tied to Silicon Valley Bank in some small way? Yeah. Yeah, it's a big question. So 
So let me uh, just quickly sketch out what SVB did in Canada versus the U.S., because this is a useful distinction to make. So in the U.S., the structure that I've described, taking deposits and making loans, SVB did both sides of that. They also did some other stuff, but let's stick with those two. In Canada, the way that they, their license worked, they could only make loans. To, they could only make loans off the Canadian book. So this bears some explanation. For years, Silicon Valley Bank had, Silicon Valley Bank has had offices in Boston and Seattle for a long time. And those Boston and Seattle offices used to do something called suitcase banking, where literally a banker with a suitcase would come across the border and have some meetings and they'd lend to some companies in Canada. But eventually they applied for a license and in 2019 they get licensed. Um, and in, so from 2019, 2019 onwards, they can't take deposits in Canada, but they can kind of, their Canadian entity, like the Canadian office can make loans. Let's call it that. Um, the reason that they're so tied into the ecosystem is two or three different things. One, um, they are a bank set up to cater to tech. And tech has a bunch of like weird things about it, right? Um, a lot of companies lose a lot of money before they ever start making money. A lot of them don't have like hard assets in the sense of, you know, if you are starting, I don't know, a shoe factory, you have a shoe factory, you have machines and stuff. You can, the loan can be collateralized against that stuff. Like you default on your loan, they come take your shoe machine, can't make shoes anymore. Very sad for you. Uh, if you are a tech company and you make like a software platform, what are they going to come and take your computers? Like, the MacBooks aren't worth that much, right? So it's hard for a conventional bank to make that loan. SVB has a bunch of specialists who've been doing this for 40 years, and they say, look, across our portfolio, we're pretty sure that we'll get paid back enough to make this worthwhile, so we're willing to take those risks. So there are some arguments that the business is inherently risky. Let's park that for a second. For the sake of why they get on so well with the industry, it's because they're willing to make loans that other banks are not willing to make. That's one set of things. Um, they offered pretty good terms. So their, the rates that they were charging were more favorable than, say, a Canadian charter bank would have charged you. Um, but they're also really good at getting on with founders. So let's say you start a tech company. Um, on paper, you're worth a ton of money, right? You go raise some financing. This, your shares that you hold in the company are worth millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, let's say. But you're incredibly illiquid. All your wealth is tied up in this Company, you maybe draw a salary, but you're worth a lot more on paper than you can actually spend. It's very hard for you to get a mortgage because, again, you're holding a bunch of paper that a bank thinks might be worthless. Silicon Valley Bank will give you a mortgage because, again, they understand your business. Um, if you are a venture capitalist and you, uh, so there's two things that happen with VCs. So venture capitalists have their own investors called limited partners. Uh, and when they make an investment, they draw money from the LP and then they put it into the company uh, that they're investing in. Silicon Valley Bank will make you a loan to make your payment into an investment if you need a little bit of bridge financing between your LP and the thing. The other thing they'll do is if you work for a venture capital fund, contrary to what the, the Silicon Valley TV show might have taught you to believe, these people are not like all rich former founders. A lot of them are just people who got into finance and they're making investments. So they might not have the capital upfront to put it to a company that they're investing in, which is part of their requirement as part of their job. Silicon Valley Bank will lend you that money. And so now you start to see essentially any time you need something from a bank, if you work in tech, Silicon Valley Bank can be there for you. 
and they'll do it with a smile on their face. They'll do it with good customer service. You saw all of these companies after they collapsed talk, telling stories about how like, you know, when we were a nothing startup that mattered to no one, SVB took our deposits. They made us a loan and then they kept in touch. They introduced us to people. They held events that were useful to us. You know, they, they, were, they were just good partners. Uh, it's as, it's maybe as simple as that. And in Canada, the Canadian side of it is what they had been doing with suitcase banking for years. In Canada in particular, there had, there had been until, let's say, five or six years ago, relatively few options for getting those kinds of loans for venture debt. So there was a fund called Wellington that was independent. There were a couple of others. There was SVB. Once SVB signals that they're coming into Canada in a real way, they file for their license in 2017. They don't get it till 2019. Some of the Canadian charter banks start to take this much more seriously. So CIBC comes into the market. They buy Wellington. They ramp up the amount they lend. RBC gets into this market. A couple of other banks do. So they basically spark this thing. One, one person uh, who's in that world at the time said they, they kind of poked the bear of the Canadian charter banks who got into this business. So they are... They they provide better rates, they provide good customer service, and frankly, they were the only game in town for quite a long time. That's super interesting. So now that they are no longer a, a going concern, I suppose, do you see the incumbent Canadian banks basically abandoning that line of business? Like if there's no competition from SVB... Do they are they going to continue down that path of maybe trying to cater to tech and to founders in that way? So what we've already seen is so Silicon Valley Bank when they went uh, when the Canadian regulator took them over had um, let's call it three hundred fifty to four hundred million in outstanding loans on their Canadian book. There may be loans that they had made to Canadian companies from the U.S. from their U.S. book, but. 350, 400. And what we saw pretty quickly was um, CIBC, RBC, and some of the other Canadian banks basically like going out looking for their clients. So contacting BC firms to say, look, if you've got an SVB client that's in, you know, that needs, has a line of credit that they can no longer access because of SVB shutdown, we'll step in and replace them. Uh, basically offering to refinance these companies. And we hear sort of anecdotally at the logic and other publications have heard this too, that like people are doing that, you know, they're taking these lines of credit to refinance. So their loan books kind of getting broken up. Um, so in the immediate period, like every VC and company I've talked to has heard from the banks uh, to say, you know, what can we do to help? That's the short term impact. There are these questions though about the longer term impact. So, you know, it's these these credit businesses, these venture debt businesses that the banks have been established for long enough and they have done well enough for the banks clearly that they're not going away. Like we're not going back to a pre-SVB in Canada situation. But there are questions about, okay, will rates start to rise, right? Because one significant source of competition has come out of the market. As it is, rates were starting, probably starting to rise because base interest rates were already going up, but also... Um, you know, I was talking to people, someone in the venture debt space or who's got knowledge of the venture debt space who was saying, you know, we'd already seen the Canadian banks start to, to uh, tweak the terms that they were lending on over the last couple of years because everyone is anticipating a recession and interest rates are rising. So they're not going to get out of the space. The Canadian companies will still have options, but will those options be as favorable as, you know, 
on as good terms as SVB would have offered? Maybe not. Are there any Canadian companies that are in really bad shape still because of this? Like had a disproportionate amount of business with like the US arm or how did, how is that kind of shaking out here? Yeah. So one thing that I haven't touched on yet is there were companies in Canada that had money in SVP in the US. So if you had a big US, if you had a US subsidiary that did a lot of business there, you might hold your money in the US branch of SVP. You couldn't hold it with the Canadian branch, but you might hold it with the US branch. And there were a few companies, publicly traded companies had to disclose risk levels, had to disclose their exposure if they met sort of a certain risk threshold, like as they would any kind of risk. And so you had a couple of companies, Acuity Ads, which is like an ad tech company, I think had a significant, like more than half, uh, significantly more than half of their money in SVB in the States. Uh, and you had a few others of those. We heard about startups um, that had just raised funding rounds uh, from US investors and had, had it deposited in an SVB account. You know, and just the timing caught them out. Like they were planning to move it, but then, uh, but uh, the but actually, answer is no one's no one's sort of been devastated by it entirely, or or very few have, for the simple reason that on Monday, on the Monday after the Friday, the FDIC comes out and says, so typically accounts in the US aren't short up to $250,000, which for you or me or like the average person is quite a high amount of money. But if you're a company that has millions of dollars, that's quite a low amount of money, right? Um, but, and then everything about that is not insured. So there was some fear that like, okay, what happens if the bank doesn't get taken over? What if happens if the bank, the deposits aren't guaranteed? What happens to the rest of our money? And as of Monday, the FDIC comes out and says, no, we will guarantee, we're guaranteeing the hundred percent of your deposits. So if you have money in SVB, you will be able to get it. Um, there are still some short-term problems. Like, could you actually transfer that money out as a Monday? I heard, we heard differing accounts. Some people could, some people couldn't. Uh, but even then, other banks were stepping in to say, you know, or investors were stepping in to say, if you need us to make you a bridge loan so you can make payroll until you can get your SVB money, we'll give you like an interest-free loan to do it. Uh, I can't think of a Canadian company that I've heard of that's gone bust or been unable to make payroll because of it. That's not to say they don't exist. Uh, but there hasn't been like one, you know, kind of bold-faced big name startup in the ecosystem that now no longer exists because of this. I can't help but think as you're describing this and talking about how all the big banks knew that, you know, there was maybe a recession incoming, that interest rates were rising, that this all seems like it was a little bit reckless, even if they didn't really do anything wrong and it comes down to a bad bet on bonds like was it reckless what they were doing um i'm sure there will be lawsuits to figure that out um i i think i think there's a there's an interesting question about um smallish banks in the u.s right so the svb was i think the 16th largest bank in the u.s which by the way, 16 banks that are large enough to have a list that goes to 16 is a luxury Canadians can only dream of. But um, there is this whole category of mid-sized banks in the States. Um, and they are inherently riskier businesses. That's not to say that they are risky. They are just riskier than Chase or you know JP Morgan or whatever, because or riskier than a big Canadian bank because they have like loans. Their, their loan portfolio and their deposit portfolio is so diversified, you know. 
like almost everyone in the country probably has an account at a big five Canadian or big six Canadian bank. Most businesses probably have an account or, or debt from one of them. Um, with SVB or Signature, which is another bank that got into some trouble last year, there are these other banks around the States that are either exposed to one particular region or they're exposed to one particular type of depositor or whatever. They just have more concentrated risk and recessions tend to be regional. They tend to be sector based. You know, there are always some sectors that do worse in a recession and some parts of the country that do worse in a recession. This is all to say, like, in theory, they could just have been caught in a bad moment. But yeah, like there was a point certainly last year when interest rates had already started to go up where like long-term bonds, it was like some of this was priced in. And one of the interesting questions about this is in the US, the banks of this size, the size that they were, don't have to uh, have less frequent reporting requirements when they have unrealized losses. So uh, the bonds were worth less already, and SVB knows this, but they haven't disclosed it because they're not required due to the regulator. So that when they make the announcement, because we've talked a lot about the deposit side, but the other thing that happened is they were publicly traded and their stock price crashed over those three days as well. And so, you know, in theory, if they had disclosed, if they'd communicated better, maybe that doesn't happen. And I did, I was talking to, uh, you know, when this kind of thing happens, like the tech, the more tech focused or the like business tech focused business press, just like, you know, it's all hands on deck all the time for like five days, right? So you're talking to all kinds of people. And one venture capitalist I was talking to was saying, you know, it's incredible that they had not, they did not spend the 24 hours after they made the announcement calling every VC in the Valley to say, we are okay, we have a plan do not tell your companies to move their money. You know, it seems like a, a basic communication failure. So beyond the actual financial management, which honestly, my, we're reaching the limits of my financial knowledge here. There's a, there's a more pure like operational, like how did you not game this out? On, on the matter of recklessness, um, I'm curious if you think that this is a, is this a, tech-specific phenomena, or is this a broader finance phenomena? Like, it occurs to me that, you know, SVB was tech-focused. I believe Signature was known for having crypto clients, or perhaps Silvergate was the other one that was the crypto-focused bank. But then Credit Suisse, you know, that's a massive institution. Are these problems contained, you think, to these, these specific institutions, or is there a broader risk here yeah there are there are kind of just so stories you can tell about every one of the banks that's had one of these issues recently like um svb has tech and that the thing about interest rates that I, we were talking about earlier you know the way that interest rates rising hurt them on both sides of their business um i think silvergate was the crypto example there's obviously the crypto crash signature also had quite a lot of like interesting exposure like non-traditional exposure um, Credit Suisse had been in trouble, frankly, for a long time. Like there have been several sort of makeover or turnaround operations at that uh, at that bank. Um, but the more of these just so stories you have, the more you have actually maybe there's something bigger going on. Again, I come back to the speed. Right, Credit Suisse's stock was crashing before the Swiss government stepped in and made UBS buy them for. 
pennies on the dollar of their worth. Um, so, and we saw after SVB went down, even the big Canadian banks stock dropped quite significantly, um, which is not necessarily intuitive if you think about the fact that they are significantly more stable than SVB was both because of the regulation, the regulatory environment in Canada, but also because of how diversified they are. So like the the sort of street investor doesn't necessarily think these are isolated phenomena. That doesn't mean that there is a trend, but like if you are a bank that's in, and this was a thing that we saw a lot of concern about in the US, like if you're a bank that has some kind of regional or, or sector exposure, it takes a bank run to destroy decades of, you know, brand building or like book building. Uh, that's not to say they're com- they com- come out of nowhere. Some banks, you know, there are banks that have had more of that bond exposure that we were talking about uh, that are more susceptible to ri- rising interest rates. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, we're not at contagion, certainly. Uh, and and regulators are working real hard to ensure that we don't get to contagion because, you know, <laughs> that not be good. Uh, but we're not in, it's interesting to think about 2007, 2008, right? The financial crisis then, which was a, there was a banking crisis that caused a recession. Uh, and here we've got the early signs of a recession an inflationary environment and re- recession that have sort of trickled into banking sort of mini crises. I find it shocking that some really big banks are like not prepared to combat what is like a single tweet by Bill Ackman going viral, like expressing doubt in your bank. And I just wonder, is the system really that fragile or is now just like the regulatory response kind of like the other side of that Um to, to kind of just stabilize the the mania that we that we saw, or how are people that you're talking to just, to just interpreting the whole communications piece? A tech investor who I won't name because I spoke to them confidentially said, um, "This is a good excuse for some investors to go around pretending that they're smart about finance and do some panic." Um, which I love, like do some panic is exactly what happened. People were doing yeah. some panic. Um, it, you get these weird things, right? Where like, I think Andreessen, some Andreessen, com- so Andreessen Horowitz is a giant, one of the biggest VC firms in Silicon Valley. Some of their companies pull some money, but then Mark Andreessen himself had money in Silicon Valley Bank, which he did not pull. Like you get these, this, this sort of like a mania that goes around. So yeah, one of the things that people were saying to me a lot was just how caught out everyone was by the speed of it. Someone made the point to me that if you are trying to transfer money from Europe, it still takes about three days to get a pretty, you know, a significant sum of money moved between bank accounts. And in three days, that, I mean, three days is less time than it took SVB to disappear. Like <laughs> these, these things are not, are not set up in any, in any way that like, is coherent anymore, right? So uh, the question was, you know, are they, are, they, are they really so vulnerable? I mean, I think in this case, you have a concentration of people in the ecosystem who are like all on Twitter and there's the, there's kind of like the investment bro thing, right? Like we, we live in a culture of like people on YouTube, you know, giving 
advice about like giving confident financial advice, not like here's how I did it, but like here's how this stock is going to perform. And it's like, you know, it's bad enough when people do that on TV. Like uh, it's a, it's a quite another thing to do it like in your tweets and, the, and people and these things move markets, right? There's a culture, there is a culture in tech of like listening to other people in tech because nobody else can know what your life is like. Nobody else can know how hard it is, you know, the, the, the sort of conventions of regular uh, business and uh, and society don't apply to you. And I do think it's, I, I heard from people who had money at SVB who are saying, look, who had really gamed it out and were like, we understand that inherently participating in a bank run, there's like a moral, like, there's a moral risk to participating in a bank run because when you do that, you literally, you are causing the bank run as much as you are participating in it. But they were also saying, but I have a fiduciary responsibility to my company to get the money before it's no longer accessible. Like I can't make the argument that like my own morality prevented me from participating and then not be able to make payroll. Um, so once it starts, like then it's anybody's game, right? Uh, this is yeah, this is kind of obtuse way of saying like I don't know that there's a, a bank out there that has the same circumstances where the people with the influence to cause a bank run also happen to be very active Twitter users who are followed by all of the other people whose money is in that bank. Like that might be a microcosm that is a one-off. I think we have to hope that. Yeah, that, that I mean, that's such an interesting point that it's basically like a subculture, a bank that was set up to serve a subculture. And then you get all of the the strange dynamics that occur in a subculture of, you know, hysteria and panic and all these sorts of things. And I guess in hindsight, of course, that's going to make you vulnerable. I can't think of another, I don't know, maybe maybe you can, but I can't think of another example of something like that happening on this sort of scale. I mean, maybe the retail stock mania around like some of these some of these retail stocks during the pandemic was kind of a similar vibe, but very strange. Yeah, and there's a there's a there's a distinction as well, I think, between so I think one of the things, you know, tech Twitter is an odd place. And I think you saw a lot of people getting sort of preemptively defensive about the idea of letting SVB fail. So you saw people saying like, oh, we can see how much everybody else hates tech now because they're willing to let SVB fail. SVB is so important to us. And it is worth remembering that on the other side of this, if things had gone worst case scenario, if the deposits had been stuck and people had been stuck owing a no longer existing bank a bunch of money, there would have been real fallout. People would have lost their jobs, you know, small businesses, what are effectively small businesses would have gone under. Contagion could have swept other regional banks that don't bank tech companies where salaries are significantly higher. And, you know, people think about engineer salaries, but there are admin people who work at those companies who don't make nearly as much, who may not have as much saved up, you know, all of these consequences. There would have been real, like, human suffering on the other end of this. So that's not to make light of the way that this, this, this sort of, like, as you say, this frenzy causes this run. But it's also true, on the other hand, that the the retail stock, the meme stock thing is an apt comparison. 
except insofar as those are mostly regular investors. Sure. They're like ordinary people who are probably are taking financial advice that is probably bad most of the time, let's be honest, from other people who are in exactly the same position as them. In theory, if you're a venture capitalist, you're supposed to know better. And so that's the part of this where like it's harder to understand. I think if the public has less sympathy for that class, that actor in this set of events with SVB, that is perhaps more understandable. Yeah, that is a, a good segue into, I guess, my next question, which is, does this have, you think, any broader consequences for tech, uh, you know, outside of the immediate fallout of this? Is, is there anything else that we should be thinking about? We are hearing a lot from companies who are saying, you know, the fundraising environment was already getting tougher, um, particularly this year through the end of last year. Uh, the money was drying up to some extent, both on the ventures, the debt side and the equity side. So if you are going out to raise money, it's definitely harder to do that today than it was on January 1st. And it's harder to do that than the day before SVB went down because, you know, I was saying before, the Canadian banks aren't going to get out of this game. Um, and banks in the U.S. similarly that offer these services aren't, but... Everyone we talked to was like, there might be a little bit of a pause while everyone figures out what the hell is going on. Like, you know, you don't want to be the bank CEO that has to be like, oh, we drastically uh, increased our exposure to uh, venture debt just after this signal to the market that, you know, about venture debt. Um, so that, that, that can't be helpful. Uh, in Canada, the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, which is kind of the lobby group for the VC and B community, um, has asked the federal government to take some measures to basically increase liquidity in the market. So they've asked them to do uh, a bridging finance program and make some changes to a VC funding program that they have. Uh, and the idea is basically if you get more money that's available out into the ecosystem, then companies that might have been, have had a hard, like worthy companies that might've had a hard time raising money because of market conditions might have an easier time of it. Certainly it's the case, you know, these things are cyclical, right? So in the boom times, you would, you would hear from lots of VCs would say, we're not investing right now because, you know, the valuations don't make any sense to us. Or like, we're not putting money into this class because it's inflated or whatever else. In an environment like this, we get back down to like the, your due diligence is much harder than it was like a year ago. Um, and so the market finds some kind of equilibrium. So I think that's the thing to look out for is like when we see the reporting about venture numbers for like next quarter, the quarter after that, has there been any hit to all of that from all of this? Like that remains to be seen. But I think the anticipation is that there will be some impact. Do you think that's likely to be successful? What they're asking, I guess, like what they're asking for and what would that look like? Like are funds just going to start lining up at like the BDC and like have this like crown core pay them out for funding? Like what does that even look like? Yeah. Um, so what they're asking for is two things specifically. So in the early days of the pandemic, the BDC set up uh, a um, basically like roughly speaking a matching fund. So if you had an... Uh, 
a VC that was willing to back you, uh, the BDC would basically offer you a certain amount of money um, at uh, uh, in um, like convertible notes. So basically like a, an instrument that basically said they weren't taking equity in your company right now, but they were basically extending you some money that later on uh, you might choose to convert to the BDC having equity in you. It was basically like, think of it as like, it was like a top up on top of whatever you could get from your venture investors. And the idea was that it was, it was both, uh, it was a signal both ways because you had to convince your investor to go to the BDC with you and say like, I vouch for this company, so you should give them some money on top. But it was also a signal to the market that the BDC was willing to give you money because the BDC has credibility as a, you know, as a crown corporation. So that's one set of things. What they're basically asking for is 300 million from that, of that type of program. The other thing they're asking for is uh, the BDC administers on behalf of the government a program called the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative, where the government puts 350 million into four funds of funds. Um, and then the terminology in this space is so difficult to work with. So the BDC puts money into funds of funds, the funds of funds fund venture funds, the venture funds fund companies, okay? The funds of funds have to raise money from private investors to that at a higher ratio, like a multiple of the amount that they're getting from the government. But traditionally, a fund or a fund of funds can't start making investments until they have raised 50% of the money that they have set as a target. The government, the CBCA is basically asking the government as the kind of anchor investor in those funds funds to say, we'll let you start investing at 30%, which means that they can go to market sooner. And because the actual rollout of this program has been quite delayed, those funds of funds aren't putting money out to funds, which means there's less money for companies. So basically the idea, like the the, the sort of Cliff Notes version of it is one, they're asking that the government to put up about 300 million in matching money and two, they're asking them to basically make a technical tweak that would allow money that's some of their own money that they've already committed and some private money to go out the door faster. Uh, but to answer the first part of your question, no, it probably isn't going to happen. Um, and, or at least it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen like quickly. Um, and, the, and the reason that I say that is like, so the budget is next week. It's uh, on Tuesday and the budget is almost certainly written at this point. Um, and it was probably almost entirely written before SVB happened. And the finance minister has been going out talking about the need for fiscal prudence. So $300 million is like, it's not a lot of money in the context of pandemic budgets, but it's not no money. So if you have a line that you're trying to hit, and suddenly you've got to come up with 300 million more. That's a bigger, that's a, that's a hard thing. To, that's a hard lift. That's not to say it will never happen. And like maybe next week I'll be proven wrong. Uh, I'll find out in a budget lockup where nobody else can see my face. So that's good. Um, but the government is not really in the business of like super swiftly responding to market conditions in this particular way with the one exception of the pandemic. So the pandemic version of this program was one of the first measures that the government took. Uh, and so that that is the reason why there may be some prospect of it happening. Um, but 
I don't know. The, the examples I think of, I think, is like, you know, when there are tariff disputes, um, like uh, the U.S. is putting tariffs on Canadian steel, the Canadian government will put out programs that are like basically like compensation. And those programs take months to put together. Uh, and so, you know, and that is like, that's the thing you kind of know is coming because the tariffs, the tariff disagreements, like trade disagreements are, you know, long running like fights. So if it takes that long to get like money for the oil and gas and steel and timber sector when those are well-known problems, I don't know. I don't see it happening, but I may be wrong. Okay, well, let's leave it there for now then. Uh, Murad, thank you so much. That was that was great. Well, that was a fascinating conversation with Murad. Particularly interesting for me here was talking a little about the, this is something that you called out, but the tech subculture that created the conditions that ultimately led this bank, which was like their bank, their financial home base, to kind of fall apart. And it just, yeah, like it just, it, it casts kind of tech Twitter in a whole new light and just how, just how kind of weird this ecosystem is as well and how panicked everyone is and, and the types of personalities on there. I think it this whole story, if you look at it through that lens, captures it perfectly. Yeah, totally. And it just shows goes to show the the amount of leverage that this small piece of the world has. And of course, this is something that we've seen with the impact, the outsized impact that these tech companies from Silicon Valley have on, you know, all parts of our life. Um, and, you know, the ability to inspire a bank run, at least with their own bank of choice. Also shines a light on how different our banking systems are. I know that next week we'll have um, we'll have a chat about the Canadian banking industry. We'll get into kind of the financial side of things and how our systems differ. But we kind of, this was like a preview to that a little bit as well as just seeing how, um, I guess, like overexposed, right? These regional banks are to both like just regions and industries and um, Brad's explanation of how recessions tend to be pretty isolated to, you know, either of those of those things at one time or another, that's, you know, it, it's pretty interesting in such a unique environment in the States that um, talking through that makes me feel a bit more, you know, makes me feel a bit more comfortable about the scenario up here. I don't think that we have too much to worry about, or at least it doesn't seem that way right now. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a good reality check, I think, because you can see these bank runs and people freaking out and banks going under and think that this is a sort of something that is going to spread to all these other financial institutions and maybe the economy as a whole. Um, but then, you know, when you get into the details of what actually happened, it does seem, at least in this case, like a fairly idiosyncratic event uh, with a lot of conditions that are not going to be replicated at any bank in Canada. Can you talk to me a bit about the group chat? Because like, I know the Bill Ackman tweet, everyone knows the Bill Ackman tweet that was like, it was like actually Bill Ackman blog post on Twitter for anyone who saw this. He was like using mm. the long like Twitter feature oh, yeah. and he was just see, basically. I didn't see that because when I see that it's long, I don't click through. I'm not, re you can't do that on Twitter. Stick within the yeah. characters. What did he well, say? I, I didn't see it. He said, I mean, to summarize, I mean, that this was the beginning of the end, right? That it was going to be a total domino effect, right? Like I think the, um, the like the regulatory intervention that this is before all that happened. So that's kind of stabilized mm. that narrative a little bit. But that's basically um, 
gosh, I don't remember it exactly, but that was basically it. It's like, it's going to happen to this bank. It's going to happen to other banks. It's at all the banks, all the mm. regional banks better watch their backs. It was like this panic, sheer panic. Um, and uh, I know a lot of, just because it's Bill Ackman, right? A lot of like articles kind of tied themselves to like, what did this, like the fallout that kind of happened mm-hmm. after this tweet, of course it went viral and was retweeted a bunch as well. But you mentioned that there was also a group chat, which I was unaware of. Well, it was a, reported on as a group chat of VCs whose portfolio companies were banked at at SVB and basically them just telling them in this chat to uh, to get out and telling each other to tell their portfolio companies to pull their money out. And because it's such a high, you know, I think Murad was talking about this, it's such a highly concentrated group of people in Silicon Valley, that was enough to you know, tip it over the edge. And you know what? They tried to come for First Republic Bank and they kind of succeeded. We'll see what happens there as well. But it's super interesting because it's like if there were the same kind of conditions at play here, then that bank maybe should have gone down as well. But clearly it's like, I don't know, clearly we're talking about two different, two yeah, totally maybe. different things too. But I mean, they did try. Maybe Bill Ackman is right. Maybe if they didn't do the, you know, universal deposit insurance, then that we'd be in a different situation right now. I don't know, but yeah, I guess, I guess we'll never credit. know. To give him some credit, I think a big part of it as well was just asking for more, I think, support at the regulatory level, which did end up happening. Yeah. Okay, well, should we leave it there? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. I'm Sarah Bartnika. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our daily newsletter at readthepeak.com. And we will see you next time.